Hello, and welcome to this episode of History Told by Idiots. This is Tessa, and as you can probably tell, it's just me for this episode. We were supposed to get into the studio to record our Halloween special for this year, and unfortunately Josh had a little bit of an accident and can't record with me at this time. We do appreciate your thoughts, your prayers, your well wishes for his recovery. So, since I already had all of my research worked up for this particular episode, and because we didn't want to keep you waiting for any longer, I decided to sit down and tell you about two stories that I find fascinating. Of course, in true Tessa fashion, one of them does end up taking a bit of a darker turn, but both of these stories are equally important and need to be told. So, sit back, relax, and let me tell you a little bit about Miracle Babies. Firstly, let's take a trip to famous Coney Island and browse amongst the sideshow attractions. If you were to have visited Coney Island in the 1930s, you may have caught a glimpse of a sign reading, All the World Loves a Baby, or Infant Incubators with Living Infants. Now, if you're curious as to how living premature infants ended up as a Coney Island sideshow, well, here's how the story goes. Martin Arthur Cooney was born... Michael Cohen, in Germany in 1870. He studied medicine in Leipzig, and by 1890, he had moved to Paris. There, Cooney studied prematurely born babies under Pierre Boudin, who was widely renowned as an expert in the field of premature infants. But before we launch into the real story, let's talk a little bit about how premature infants were cared for before incubators were a thing. Now, if you are unfortunate enough to have had a prematurely born child or know someone that had a prematurely born child or a child born with complications, then you are probably pretty familiar with the incubator and how essentially it is a life-saving device that keeps that little tiny baby alive. Well, simple technologies were used before the invention of the incubator. Premature infants were placed in machinery heated by hot water bottles, for instance. The creator of this technique, Tarnier, figured out that doing this reduced infant mortality, but even still, most hospitals didn't implement such things, and they focused more on maternal care and breastfeeding in order to save babies that were born early. In 1889, however, a French physician, Alexandre Lyon, patented an incubator in which the temperature was regulated by an actual thermostat, and the ventilation was provided by an electric fan. So this was revolutionary because you didn't have to keep heating up hot water bottles around the clock. You actually got to use electricity, and it was controlled by a thermostat, so you could turn the machinery on and be pretty much secure in the knowledge that it was going to do its job. But, on the downside, such machines were very expensive, and most hospitals could not afford them, and even if they could, most would not actually spend the funding to buy these incubators. So, now back to Dr. Cooney. 
after he worked a while with Boudin, he was asked to supervise a display of incubators at the 1896 Berlin World's Fair. Now, Dr. Cooney was a natural-born showman, so, of course, he agreed to supervise this exhibit. So he was given six premature babies from the Berlin Charity Hospital, and they were placed on display in the incubators for spectators to view. The exhibit was named the, and listen, I apologize in advance because I will probably butcher this, but the exhibit was named the Kinderbrutenstalt, or the Child Hatchery. It was extremely successful, and Cooney was just flat-out inspired by the excellent turnout and how people just fawned over the little tiny babies in their incubators. The exhibit was so successful that he raised more than enough money to come to America where he knew that he wanted to continue his work with premature infants. In the summer of 1898, Cooney attended the Trans-Mississippi Exposition in Omaha. This was a World's Fair held in Omaha from June 1st to November 1st, 1898, and it had a goal of showing the world the development of the entire West, from the Mississippi to the Pacific Coast. Over 2.6 million people came to Omaha to view over 4,062 exhibits during this exposition. This exposition was huge. It stretched over 180 acres, and it even featured a lagoon encircled by 21 classical buildings. There were gondolas that you could hop in with your family, or swan boats, and ride in circles around all of the exhibits on the lagoon. Cooney not only attended this Trans-Mississippi Exposition, he was an exhibitor. And of course, he brought along his incubators and got some premature babies from a local hospital. And spectators could come and view this room full of premature infants. Of course, this endeavor was just as successful as the Berlin World's Fair. After this was over, Cooney then traveled back to Paris, and he went to the Paris Exposition in 1900, where he showcased his incubators and babies, and then back stateside to Buffalo, New York, for the Pan American Exposition, which ran from May 1st, 1901 to November 2nd, 1901, and encompassed 350 acres of exhibits. There were over 8 million visitors to this World's Fair, and it's widely remembered because, and you history buffs may know this, because President William McKinley was assassinated while in attendance. For Cooney, it was also memorable because he was in attendance with his infants and incubators. And of course, it was wildly popular and very successful. It's hinted at by the newspapers of the time, particularly newspaper reporter Arthur Brisbane. He actually compared Niagara Falls and its tributary rivers. He said, The diminutive baby in its hot air chamber, sightless, deaf, feeble, but with the great human race, the vast sea of organized thought back of it. What is the power of the falls beside the force that may originate in the tiny brain of an incubator baby? That brain may start a work that will persist and affect man's destiny when the fall shall have dwindled down to even a placid stream. That's big words, right? Big words about those little tiny babies comparing them to the power and awesomeness of Niagara Falls. With so much success during his stint at various expositions, Cooney decided to settle in the United States for good in 1903, which 
you can't blame him because the guy had to be making a killing at doing this. And he ended up setting up shop on Coney Island. Now, Cooney stayed there for around 40 years, running an elegant little hospital in the midst of all of the greasy food and the shooting galleries and the sideshow attractions and the rods from 1902 to 1943. Painted on the outside of the building where he had his hospital were the words, All the world loves babies. And the hospital itself was state-of-the-art for the time. It consisted of rows of incubators inhabited by tiny living babies, and it was all spotlessly cleaned and sterile, had white walls, around-the-clock teams of nurses, wet nurses, other medical professionals. So, in short, it was a very different world than the one outside the doors, where hawkers were enticing onlookers with promising a glimpse of the tiny miracles. Of course, for a small fee, you couldn't get in for free. But the fee itself was largely used to pay for the care of the babies. It wasn't exactly cheap to run around-the-clock hospital care and provide such high-technology equipment for these babies. So, in 1903, it cost around 15 cents a day to care for each baby, which is roughly $405 today. Most parents that entrusted their infants to the care of Cooney and his staff could not afford to pay for the care of those tiny babies. But, luckily for them, Cooney never charged them a single dime, which is part of the miracle. And I think that to get in to the exhibit to see the infants in their incubators, it would cost you 25 cents in the 1930s. In 1903, it would have been different, but I know that in the 1930s, it was around 25 cents. There are so many wonderful stories of children who were saved thanks to Dr. Cooney and his free medical care. And there's so many different testimonials from folks that were saved due to his methods and to the care that they received. One such baby was rushed to Cooney by her father, wrapped in a blanket. She and her twin had been born at around two pounds and given up for as good as dead by the hospital that she was born in. Her twin had actually already died at birth, and they told the mother and father there was nothing that they could do to save the remaining twin, but her father did not want to take that for an answer, and so he wrapped her in a blanket. He hopped into a taxi. They drove to Coney Island. Cooney was glad to take that baby in, and six months later, she was healthy enough to leave the hospital and go into the care of her parents. Her name was Lucille Horn, and she died at the age of 96, so a very long and prosperous life, thanks to Cooney's sideshow exhibit. Something else that struck me about Cooney's exhibits is that he accepted every baby into his care regardless of their race, regardless of their social class. And at a time in which racial tensions were so high, this is astounding. It's said that when visitors would walk into the exhibit, the tiny babies were laid out in rows in their steel and glass machines, and they were of all races, all colors, all sizes, all socioeconomic statuses. Some were just small enough to hold in the palm of your hand. Like Kathy Meyer, who was born eight weeks premature in 1939. She was taken to Cornell University's New York Hospital, which had just opened a training and research center for premature infants, the first facility of its kind on the eastern seaboard. When Meyer's parents were told that she'd need to stay in the hospital for several months, and they realized that they could not afford to pay the bills, 
Her pediatrician suggested that they send her to Martin Cooney at the New York World's Fair. So, Cooney sent his incubator ambulance straight to the hospital to collect her. They interviewed Meyer, and she said, I was a sickly baby. If it wasn't for Cooney, I wouldn't be here today, and neither would my four children and five grandchildren. We have so much to thank him for. Of course, there's always some speculation that things aren't always as they seem when it comes to pretty much anything today in the world. But with Cooney, the speculation is that maybe he didn't actually graduate from medical school at all, so maybe he wasn't actually a doctor. Cooney was deliberately evasive when it came to telling others about his birth, his background, his training, so his history. And because of this, rumors spread that Cooney was indeed a quack. And because of that, many doctors would begin showing up at Coney Island to collaborate with him. In the sense, I guess, that they came to spy on him. To maybe see if they could poke at this legendary man and see if maybe he would unravel a little bit. Maybe he wasn't all what they thought he was. Many in the medical profession even viewed the incubator doctor with suspicion and others with hostility. The New York Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children had accused Coney of exploiting the babies and endangering their lives by putting them on show. But none of these complaints were sustained because, without the help of Coney, most of these infants would not have survived. By the 1930s, Coney was finally being taken seriously as a medical pioneer. His professional collaboration with other doctors marked a key stage in this. But, as I just said earlier, perhaps he wasn't even an actual doctor at all. Throughout his career, Cooney said that he'd studied medicine in Leipzig and in Berlin. Researchers have actually found no evidence of Cooney, or Cohen, as he was known then, having studied medicine at a university in either city. So, to become a physician in Germany, you were required to write a thesis. There is no thesis on file anywhere written by Cooney. He was also very deliberately evasive about his date and his place of birth. Most people, when they research him, they find that he immigrated to the United States in 1888 when he was 19, but someone of the age of 19 would not have been old enough to have studied at the university in Leipzig and Berlin before going on to do graduate work in Paris. In the 1910 U.S. Census, Cooney listed his career as surgical instruments. So over time, the success of Cooney's facility began to attract the attention of some of Americans' leading pediatricians, right up until the late 1930s. Like I said, they kind of wanted to unravel this legendary man. Few American hospitals actually had incubators at that time, and so the hospitals would just send their premature babies to him. And like I said, he took in babies from all backgrounds, regardless of their race or social class. Even though he may not have been a qualified doctor, the pediatricians that came to work with him began coming to the fairgrounds specifically to collaborate with him and to study the babies in his care. And pretty much everyone agreed that this man, regardless of whether he was an actual medical professional, was doing great, miraculous, wonderful work. If it had definitely been confirmed that Cooney was not, in fact, a doctor, He could have faced prison time and a healthy fine, but for him, the risk was worth it. There were a reported 8,000 premature infants interested into Cooney's care during his career, 
and 6,500 of these survived. When speaking of the babies that did not make it, Cooney said, I can't save them all. But the percentage of loss is not large, and every parent knows that I took good care of his baby until God took its soul. I never had a complaint or an investigation. And actually, Cooney's own daughter was born prematurely and was part of the exhibits too. Her name was Hildegard, and she survived and thrived thanks to the incubators. And she ended up becoming a nurse and working alongside her father, saving the lives of infants, just like he was. In July of 1934, Cooney organized a homecoming for his graduates. That's what he called the babies that left his care, his graduates. Those babies who were in the incubators at the Chicago's World Fair the previous summer. Of those 58 that he cared for during this time, 41 of them actually returned with their families for this reunion. And Cooney was so very proud of these babies, all of the babies that he cared for during his time running these exhibits. He died in 1950, and what's sad about that is that despite his massive success, despite 6,500 premature infants out of 8,000 surviving in all of his years, the incubator did not even begin to be widely used in hospitals until after his demise. So it makes you sad to think of all of the little babies that could have survived had the hospitals just adopted this technology after Cooney and others had proved that it worked. So that's the story of the Coney Island Sideshow Babies and Dr. Martin Cooney. I thought that was just a really fascinating story. I just can't imagine walking into a fair or a sideshow and seeing live infants in incubators on a big sign and then paying to go and look at these little tiny miraculous humans. So I thought that was very interesting and I thought that you guys might too. So I wanted to share it with you. And I think that that story kind of ends on a happy note because so many children survived because of Dr. Cooney and his efforts. To tell you a little bit more about some miraculous humans, but these miraculous humans do not particularly have a pleasant ending to their story, but they're miraculous even still. I want to tell you about the Dion quintuplets. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Dion quintuplets. They do have a miraculous start and a pretty sad end, but I think that their story deserves to be told because it speaks volumes about the exploitation of children. So, travel with me to the village of Corbeil in Ontario, which is near the Quebec border. It's May 28, 1934, on a little farm. A French-Canadian mother by the name of Elzir Dion gives birth to five identical girls. Their names are Annette, Emily, Yvonne, Cecile, and Marie. The quintuplets were born at least two months prematurely, and each baby was small enough to be held in one hand. Together, they weighed only 14 pounds. That's five babies together, weighing only 14 pounds. And few people expected that they would survive, but they did. And they became the first quintuplets known to have survived infancy. Now, this is long before fertility drugs and in vitro fertilization, so... To put this in perspective for you, the odds of naturally conceiving identical quintuplets 
and them surviving till birth is estimated at 1 in 57 million. So let me say that again. 1 in 57 million. So against all odds, the Dion quintuplets were conceived, were born, and survived. They were extremely remarkable in many ways. They were the first medically and genetically documented set of quintuplets that survived, period. Not one member of any other quintuplet set had previously lived more than a few days. But the Dion set, they did have a sixth member that was aborted during the third month of pregnancy. Much credit for the survival of these five premature infant girls was due to one organization and one man, the man Dr. Alan Roy Defoe, and then the Hospital for Sick Children from Toronto, which actually made available to Defoe quantities of milk and modern incubators, other equipment that would have been needed for their survival. So, the University of Toronto actually conducted biological, psychological, and dental studies of the quintuplets, too. These studies established that the set originated from one fertilized egg. So the Dion quintuplets arose through repeated twinning of the early single embryo. Therefore, six embryos were produced, and the five infants surviving birth inherited the same genetic material. It's really kind of amazing to think about the odds that these five little girls would be born totally identical. Let's talk a little bit more about Dr. Alan Roy Defoe. He, of course, started spreading the news right after he helped to deliver these five identical girls in this little farmhouse in Corbeil, Canada. First, he ran to the girl's uncle, informing him that his brother and sister-in-law had just gone from a parent of five to a parent of ten. Now, I'm not a parent, but can you imagine? You already have five children. Children... You think that you're pregnant with your sixth child, and then you give birth to five babies. The doctor then went to the post office and then into the next town over and told everyone. He was just so excited that he got to be a part of this. And then he went and told a store clerk. He told some people on the street. And then the store clerk said, well, you should tell the newspaper. So he went to go tell the newspaper, but the girl's uncle had already done this. The editor of the newspaper in question, the North Bay Nugget, immediately put this amazing news out on the wire service, and then they sent over a reporter and a photographer to the farmhouse. Within six hours of their birth, the Dion quintuplets, again, Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Emily, and Marie, were photographed for all the world to see. They were, of course, dangerously underweight, two months premature, so they were removed from the butcher's basket, which was keeping them warm and positioned next to their mother, who was completely in a daze. As you can imagine, I think that I would be in a daze too. She had barely actually survived giving birth to these five babies. She was rightfully so in a daze. But they still managed to get all five babies and mother in the shot for the newspaper. And at first... The media attention that they got from this, it seemed like a blessing, like a boon. There were journalists that came from Chicago and Toronto, and they brought with them water-heated incubators that pretty much saved the lives of the girls. The Dion's were not poor. I mean, their farmhouse didn't have electricity, but they weren't poor. But faraway hospitals 
chipped in and sent monetary donations. They shipped in breast milk. The Red Cross provided an around-the-clock nursing team. So within days, thousands of people gathered outside of this house, peering through the windows and trying to get in the front door, pretty much turning the Dion's field, their yard, into a parking lot. And reporters just milled around and in and out of the house all day long. It was a media frenzy. Meanwhile, the girl's father, Oliver, worried about how he was going to pay for all of this medical care and for all of the other expenses of five more children. This was the middle of the Great Depression, by the way. So how was he going to pay for five kids, let alone ten kids? So he went to his priest for guidance on whether he should accept offers that he had been given. Now, these offers had come in to publicly display the quintuplets for money. So you want to talk about child exploitation. Well, this is where this starts. The priest, instead of discouraging this behavior, offered to be his business manager instead. (laughs) So within a week, a deal was signed for tens of thousands of dollars. This was a fortune to be made in the middle of the Great Depression. And Oliver agreed that if and when his daughters were healthy enough, they would appear at the Chicago World's Fair for six months. He regretted signing the deal almost immediately and tried to get out of it, but the Chicago promoters for the World's Fair refused. A contract was a contract. Meanwhile, the little girl's conditions worsened, and the already tiny babies began to lose weight, not gain it. So comes back Dr. Defoe, and now he has nurses with them. They seal off a room in the house for the girl's care and won't let anyone in, even the parents. The parents were allowed only glimpses of them in their own home. The Chicago promoters were trying to enforce the deal. The media was in a frenzy outside. The Ontario Attorney General's office proposed this solution to Oliver and his wife, Elzir. You could sign over custody of your girls to the Red Cross for two years. Now, the Red Cross was under no obligation to the promoters. Plus, they would build a state-of-the-art hospital right across the street from the farmhouse just for the girls' care. And so they really didn't feel like they had any other option other than to accept this what seemed like a gracious offer. And so the baby girls were moved. And once they were moved to this new state-of-the-art hospital, it was even harder for Oliver and Elzir to get time with them as they now lived in this sterile space that was sealed off from the rest of the world. And even when they were allowed to see them, they were never allowed to be alone with their own children. And then, months later, for what seemed like no reason at all, the Premier of Ontario proposed a bill to permanently strip them of custody and make the girls wards of the state instead. He argued that it would protect them from being exploited and would ensure that any money made would be held in a trust for their benefit only. Well, this didn't exactly happen as he promised, but we'll get to that. The parents, who were frequently depicted in the media as ignorant peasants, publicly begged, begged for the chance to prove they were good parents, but it didn't actually matter. They were stripped of their rights, the girls were taken away, and the only glimpses that they got of their children were 
through glass windows. The Dion quintuplets would be raised by Dr. Defoe, primarily, and a constantly rotating team of nurses. Before the age of two, Annette, Cecile, Marie, Yvonne, and Emily, collectively, were these cherubic, cute little chubby-cheeked spokespersons for Quaker Oats. They were spokespersons for Lysol Disinfectant, for Libby's Homogenized Baby Food, and several other brands. In 1937, the same year their photo would grace the May 31st cover of Time magazine, their names would become synonymous with Palm Olive Soap, Colgate Dental Cream, Caro Corn Syrup, Five Flavor Lifesavers, Baby Ruth Chocolate Bars. If you name it, the Dion Quintuplets were probably on the face of it, and they were just so popular that the world was just in a Dion Quintuplet frenzy. This is all despite the fact that the sisters themselves, whose every mood, outburst, intake, and bowel movement were recorded for the sake of science. They were forbidden from eating sugar. They had to promote caro corn syrup, five-flavor lifesavers, Baby Ruth chocolate bars. Every little bit of their lives were recorded, were monitored, were seen by the public eye. In 1937, the girls were three. The Canadian government passed the Act for the Protection of the Dion Quintuplets, which limited the range of products that they could endorse, a list of which included things like eyebrow pencils. They're three. They don't need to endorse any kind of makeup. They don't need to endorse eyebrow pencils. But the same act also included controls on the use of the words quintuplets, quince, quins, which ensured that the government would collect a payment any time that those terms were employed. Yeah, it's a little extreme, isn't it? Incredibly, the quintuplets' newly appointed guardians turned right around and did exactly what they said they were not going to do, which was to exploit the children. They pretty much built a baby zoo. There was an outdoor area where the girls would play twice a day. Everything was scheduled, like I said. They would waddle out in their little bathing suits and play in the water outside, or they would push them out in their strollers to get the fresh air. And it didn't actually matter what kind of mood the babies were in. They were still forced to go outside and play for the benefit of others that were watching them in this long observation hallway that curved around the entire outdoor area. Thousands of spectators would come by daily to see these quintuplets. Now that the girls were fully under the guardianship of the government, Defoe had free range to experiment. So his ultimate goal was to create a infant utopia and a golden standard of childhood and child care. And so for him, routine was king. Mornings began at 6.30 a.m. with orange juice and cod liver oil, and then the nurses came on, who made up a composite mother because they weren't allowed to see their own. And according to the Dion Quintuplets, when they were interviewed later on, they were instructed not to show favoritism or affection. Discipline was also key, though usually it was delivered with a smile because people were watching. Even still, discipline was absolute. So, for example, 
if the girls developed the habit of putting their hands inside their diapers when they slept. Their pajama arms would be tied to their cribs at night, so they would not do this. So discipline was absolute. Meanwhile, the baby show, as Defoe called it, intensified with the opening of the private playground. Like I said, they were shown multiple times a day, sometimes four times a day, before and after their morning nap, and again before and after their afternoon nap. If one of the girls was unwell, the nurses would secretly display another of her sisters twice, ensuring that everyone left feeling like they had seen five identical babies. Sometimes they were pushed out into the playground area during bad weather or when they were sick. Their own mother had to elbow her way through the crowds to see her children. And she would tell the people that were watching they belonged to them, not to us. Their mere existence created a frenzy, a mania that was only rivaled three decades later by the arrival of the Beatles in America. These poor little girls were so exploited. When the playground was opened to the public in 1936, 5,000 people stampeded the grounds. 5,000 people. They called it Quintmania, and it was a big business. It brought in an estimated 3 million visitors in the 1930s. More people visited Quintland, as their compound was called, than Niagara Falls. Let me say that again. More people visited Quintland than Niagara Falls in the 1930s. And their own doctor called them the eighth wonder of the world. But of course he would, because he was exploiting them and getting money from it. At the end of the observation hallway, there were hot dog stands and souvenir shops. One of them was actually run by the midwives who helped deliver the girls, and another was run by their own father, who rarely ever saw them. They built quint cabins all over the region for visiting tourists. They raised gasoline tax as waves of visitors motored in. And by 1937, Quintland was more of a popular tourist destination than Niagara Falls was. It's just staggering to me. But that was kind of the tip of the sales iceberg. The hot dog stands, the souvenir shops, they were the tip of the iceberg. Because there were, of course, dolls and paid photo shoots for magazines. And like we said, they appeared in the advertisements for dozens of products. Later on, they appeared in ads for Heinz Ketchup. For sanitized mattress covers, for typewriters, for ice cream, for bread. And because Dr. Defoe was a born showman, he stoked the media interest, which actually, in some kind of weird way, helped to keep the babies alive. Because the breast milk was shipped in, and they got incubators sent in. So, in the beginning and early stages of this, the media attention was a blessing. It was a good thing. It's when it switched over to the Quint mania, and they began to exploit these children, that it became bad. For example, a pair of Americans, this is so weird to me, a pair of Americans offered to pay thousands of dollars for the bed in which the babies were born. Like, why? Why do you feel the need to own the bed on which these five children were born? That's just a little weird. One person even tried to break into the house where they were born. And it was all just this frenzy that was labeled, you know, the quintuplet disease. So quintmania was at its height. 
And all of this money was coming in. Remember, it was supposed to be put into a trust fund meant for the girls. But the fund itself was regularly ransacked because it paid for every aspect of the Dion Hospital, right down to the water bill. It paid for the construction of public bathrooms for all of the tourists and the hotel dinners of visiting psychologists. The photo shoots often centered on holidays and would be shot months in advance. Boxes of Christmas presents and five-tiered birthday cakes were actually empty on the inside and nothing more than props. When she was interviewed later, Cecile said, We were obliged to do so many things so often that in our head we didn't feel that we were able to say, No, not this time, another time. The windows of the observation hallway were supposedly obscured so that the girls couldn't see all of the strangers, but they later admitted, We knew they were there. We knew we were being watched. They would ham it up for the tourists, just as they had learned to pose for the cameras. In all, they spent nine years in this hospital. They left it only a few times to meet the king and queen in Toronto and for a couple of promotional tours, but they described those years as the happiest and least complicated years of our lives. And I think that this is what is so sad Even though they were being exploited, even though they were being told what they could and couldn't do around the clock, they were being made to promote these things they couldn't enjoy. They couldn't eat sweets, but they had to promote sweets. They were being made to take photo after photo and to stand and act for these crowds. But those were still the happiest, least complicated years of their lives. Yvonne later said, We didn't know it at the time that the whole way of life in which we were raised wasn't good for us. Though visitors were told that the children were unaware and unbothered by the crowds, this really was untrue. Even though they would ham it up for the tourists, sometimes they were sick, sometimes they were just in a bad mood, temperamental little toddlers. Daily they had these children run to the adults and complain about the people viewing them. They didn't want to be viewed. On many occasions, they were frightened. They hid themselves, and they refused to play. They had nightmares regularly. But as for Oliver and Elzir, they never stopped advocating to get all of their children living together under one roof. And finally, in 1943, they succeeded. And they also got a new roof in the form of a new house. A 19-bedroom yellow brick mansion paid for with the Quintuplets Trust Fund, of course. So in 1943, they were able to get the children to come home. Unfortunately, when the Quintuplets came home, it was not a happy home. Years of separation had done its damage. The girls felt guilty for the suffering that they had brought the family, and as for Elzir, she treated them very harshly. Sometimes she would scream at them and insult them and even hit them. Elzir gave them grueling chores and then chastised them when they didn't do them well enough. She would slap them and insult them to hammer in her disappointment. She would say, Did a nurse tell you to do that? Or, If I'd raised you, you'd be normal like the others. Annette said they didn't treat us as children. We were their servants, slaves. It was not human. 
So they were treated as servants in their own home by their parents, but they were still celebrities outside of it. Just going to the movies for these girls required police escorts. And eventually, their father, Oliver, started taking a special interest in them as well. He would give them candies, but then the giving of candies led to him visiting them in their bedrooms at night. Decades later, three of the quintuplets came out and said that Oliver sexually abused them. And all of the other Dion children denied this, but for the quints, it was a different story. So the hospital across the street was eventually turned into a private Catholic school for the sisters, with a handful of local girls as classmates. And at one point, Annette confided in the school's chaplain about their father's abuse, but he did actually nothing at all. He believed if he confronted the parents, they would yank all of the girls out of school, and that some contact with the outside world was better than none at all. And so the abuse continued. The years passed. Interest in the girls finally began to recede, but they were still forced to dress up in matching outfits for photo shoots even up until their teen years, and the media continued to pry. The Toronto Star published each girl's weight when they were 14. Around this time, Emily began to have seizures. Because of the stigma of the day against epilepsy, the family kept it secret, even though her seizures became more frequent and severe. Marie, who had been born last and was at first the frailest, surprised everyone by being the first one to leave the fold. At 19, she joined a strict order of nuns and moved into a convent. Emily followed her into a different convent soon after. Unfortunately, only two months later, Emily died suddenly, probably due to complications from her seizure disorder. She was only 20. Even in their grief, the four surviving sisters... This just kills me. The four surviving sisters were made to pose for press photos next to Emily's open casket. In her death, though, Emily sort of gave her sisters a release, as Cecile put it, because public interest in the girls dried up. They moved away from their abusive family. They started their own lives in Montreal. Yvonne and Cecile both went to nursing school together, and Marie and Annette roomed together in college. Three of them eventually married, though none of the marriages lasted. Even as adults, the sisters found it difficult to be around anyone but each other. In February of 1970, Marie's body was found in her bed next to several bottles of medication. She had just recently separated from her husband and placed her children in foster care as she struggled with depression. A cause of death would never be determined. But after her death, the remaining sisters became even more private. If you're wondering what happened to the rest of that trust fund that was supposed to make the girls rich, well, by the time they learned of it and gained control, more than half of it was gone. In the 1990s, Yvonne, Annette, and Cecile were struggling to pay their modest bills. Cecile's adult son, Bertrand, began to investigate and discovered how the account had been plundered, and then began a public relations campaign to shame the Canadian government into giving them a portion of state profits they felt like they were owed. And I don't blame them, because it's horrible the way that they were treated and exploited, and then not even given control of their own funding for it. 
The sisters spoke to the media for the first time in decades when this happened, and they revealed how absolutely, utterly miserable their lives had been. Eventually, they took a $4 million settlement, but $4 million is not enough to pay back for what these girls had to go through. At the time that I was doing this research, two of the sisters were still living. They were 85 at the time. That would be Cecile and Annette. But the son who helped them win their settlement disappeared with Cecile's share of that money. So, in a terrible irony, she became a ward of the state again and lived in a state-run nursing home. Once older, they rarely spoke with the media, and generally only to warn the public about what happened to them and that it must never happen again. And given how much more is known about child development now, could it even be possible that something like this could happen again? Even if we didn't necessarily have a baby zoo where you could pull up outside with your family and unload, eat a hot dog from a hot dog stand, pick up some souvenirs, and then view quintuplets through a glassed-in window as they were poked and prodded and made to wander out and play so you could enjoy their cuteness. We do have kidfluencers. We have YouTubers. We have kids on TikTok and Instagram. Kidfluencers. In the December 1st, 1997 issue of Tom, Three of the surviving quints, Annette, Cecile, and Yvonne, they were in their 60s by then, they published an open letter to the parents of the Macaulay septuplets who were born earlier that year. That letter was to remind everyone that their lives had been ruined by the exploitation they suffered, and they were urging those parents to raise their children in a normal environment. They said, quote, We hope your children receive more respect than we did. Their fate should be no different from that of other children. Multiple births should not be confused with entertainment, nor should they be an opportunity to sell products. So it's a sad story. And hopefully it's okay that it's a little sad, because it does give us a lesson of what not to do in the future, which that's what history is good for, right? We listen to history, and we research it and study it, so we don't repeat the mistakes again. We appreciate each of you. Thank you for hanging in with us and sticking around while we've been dealing with poor little Josh and his accident. Hopefully he'll be back better than ever pretty soon. So we appreciate each of you. Shout out to the Out of the Blank podcast. I just did an interview with them yesterday. And uh, I'm excited for you to listen to the episode. We talk about a little bit of everything. We talk about libraries. We talk about Harry Potter. It all comes back to Harry Potter for me. Go check them out, the Out of the Blank podcast. And I'll be sure to post whenever that episode goes live. So I hope that you had a very happy Halloween Maybe you're like me, and you're getting ready to put your Christmas tree up, even though it's only November 1st. Either way, I thank you for joining me and listening to me talk about crazy stuff for an hour of your time. And hopefully we'll be back soon with both of us better than ever. But regardless, I'm still going to end the episode the way that we always end the episode by saying, love history, love your libraries, and love yourself. Thanks.